Book two from the point of view of Lady Bridget O'Hara. Chapter five of Lady Bridget in the Never Never Land by Rosa Prayed. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kirsty. Her husband was at the door calling her in the grey of dawn. He had everything ready, he said. She dressed fumblingly as if she were still in her dream, and they walked to the station shed, whither the baggage had already gone. The sun was only a little way above the horizon when they took their places in the bush train that was to bear her on the second stage of her journey into the unknown. Such a wheezy, shaky little train, and such funny, ugly country. Sandy flats, sparsely grown, mostly with gum trees, where there were no houses and gardens. Near the township there were a good many of these wooden dwellings with corrugated iron roofs, some of the more aged ones of slab, and with a huge chimney at one end. They were set in fenced patches of millet and Indian corn, or gardens that wanted watering, and with children perched on the top rail of the fences, who cheered the train as it passed. Sometimes the train puffed between lines of grey slab fencing, in which were armies of white skeleton trees that had been wrung for extermination, or with bleached stumps sticking up in a chaos of felled trunks, while in some there had sprung up sickly ironbark saplings. Now and then they would stop at a deserted-looking station, round which stood a few shanties and the inevitable public house. Maybe it had formerly been a sheepfold, abandoned when the scab had destroyed the flocks, and there were enormous rusty iron boiling pots to which a fetid odour still clung, and where the dust that blew up had the grittiness and faint smell of sun-dried sheep's droppings. At one of the more important stopping places, they had early lunch of more fried steak with sweet potatoes and heavy bread and butter and peach jam. Most of the other passengers got out for lunch also. There was a fifth-rate theatrical company cracking jokes among themselves, drinking brandy and soda at extortionate prices and staring hard at Lady Bridget. Colin pointed out to her a lucky digger in his family. Two daughters in blue serge trimmed with gold braid and a fat red-faced mamma, very fine in a feathered hat, black brocade, a diamond brooch, and with many rings and jangling bangles. There were some battered, bearded bushmen who seemed to be friends of Collins, though he did not introduce them to his wife, and who talked on topical subjects in a vernacular which Lady Bridget thought to herself she would never be able to master. There was a professional horse-breaker whom McKeith hailed as Zack Duppo, and to whom he had a good deal to say also. There were some gangs of shearers or stockmen or what not, who appeared to be the following of two or three rakish, aggressive-looking males, upon whom the bushmen scowled. Union delegates, strike organisers, McKeith explained. After that station, marks of civilization diminished. The Noah's Ark humpies in their clearings became few and far between, and the long lines of grey two-railed fences melted into gum forest. Now and then they saw herds of cattle and horses. Once, a company of kangaroos, sitting up with four paws drooping, and a baby marsupial poking its head out of the pouch of one of the does. Then, taking fright in a second, all leaped up, long back legs stretched, tails in air, and, in a few ungainly bounds, they were lost to sight among the gum trees. Early in the afternoon the train reached the temporary terminus, for the line was being carried on by degrees through the Lura district. This was a mining town called Fig Tree Mount. Why, nobody could tell, for there were no fig trees, and not a sign of a hill as far as the level horizon, except for the heaps of refuse mullock that showed where shafts had been sunk. A good many years ago, Bridget was told, there had been a rush to the place, but the goldfield turned out not so good as had been expected, 
and it was only lately that the discovery of a payable reef had brought the digging population back again. From one direction came the whir of machinery, and there was in the same quarter a collection of white tents and roughly put up humpies. Otherwise the township consisted of a long dusty street cutting the sandy plain, and, out of the two score or so of zinc-roofed buildings, twenty were public houses. Lady Bridget had been very silent all day. To Colin's anxious inquiries, she answered that it was enough to take in so many new impressions without talking about them. Through the crude blur of these impressions, her husband stood out definitely, a dominant influence. She seemed to be only now beginning to feel his dominance. Yet all the time she could not get away from the sense of living in some fantastic dream, an Edward Lear nonsense dream. The sight of the kangaroos in the bush brought a particular rhyme of her childhood to mind. She half said, half sang it to an improvised tune. Said the duck to the kangaroo, Good gracious, how you hop! Over the fields and water too, as if you would never stop. She caught her husband looking at her in a fascinated, puzzled way, and paused and gave him her funny little smile. That's a very pretty song, he said. But I can't make out what it means. What is it about, a duck or a kangaroo? They're nonsense words, aren't they? Nonsense, oh, yes, frightful nonsense. Only it struck me that there's sometimes a lot of truth in nonsense. Listen now, and she went on. My life is a bore in this nasty pond, and I long to go out in the world beyond. I wish I could hop like you, said the duck to the kangaroo. He still looked puzzled, but adoring. You've got no sense of humour, she said. Don't you see that you and I are as incongruous as the duck and the kangaroo? That is so, he answered gravely. But I'll be a kangaroo with pleasure if it makes the bush more attractive to you. She fell suddenly silent again, and sat gloomy and staring at the endless procession of gum trees as the train lumbered on through that fantastic forest, which made her think of all kinds of ridiculous things. And she was conscious all the time of his furtive watching from the corner opposite, and of his readiness to spring forward at the least indication of her wanting anything. It bewildered her, the strangeness of being alone with, entirely dependent upon this big man of the bush, who had the right to look after her, and yet of whom she knew so little. He did look after her with sedulous care. He had natty bush dodges for minimising the discomfort of the hot, dusty train journey. He manufactured a windsail outside the carriage window, which brought in a little breeze during the airless heat of midday. He contrived to get cool drinks and improvised for her head a cushion out of his rolled-up poncho, a silk handkerchief and a large cold cabbage leaf, against which she leaned her hot forehead. In all his actions she watched him with a curious blend of feelings. There was a satisfaction in his largeness, his common sense, his breeziness. She liked hearing his quaint bush colloquialisms, when he leaned out of the window at the small stations and exchanged greetings with whomsoever happened to be there. Officials, navvies, miners, even Chinamen, most of whom saluted him with a, "'Glad to see you back, sir,' or a, "'Good day, boss. Good luck to you,' as if they all knew the significance of this wedding journey, which no doubt they all did. Bridget kept in the background and smiled enigmatically at it all. She was interested in her husband, both in the personal and abstract sense, and was a little surprised at herself for being pleased when he paid her any attention or sat down beside her. At moments she even hankered after the touch of his fingers, and had a perverse desire to break down the restraint he was so manifestly putting upon himself. Once, when he had been sitting very still in the further corner, thinking she was asleep, she had looked at him suddenly, 
and had found his eyes fixed on her in a gaze so concentrated so full of intense longing that she felt as if he were trying to hypnotize her into loving him she knew that if he were it must be unconscious hypnotism on his part there were no subtleties of that kind in colin mckeith no it was the primal element in him that appealed to her dominated her for she was startled by a sudden realization of that dominant quality in him as applied to herself in their courtship it had been she who dominated him he reddened guiltily when he caught her eyes his long upper lip went down in obstinate resistance to impulse but if he had kissed her then she would not have rebelled colin what are you thinking of she said and he answered in a tone husky with pent emotion i was thinking of our camp to-night of how we should be alone together in the starlight and of how i want to make you happy and of how wonderful it all is like some impossible dream yes i've been feeling too that it is like a dream she replied gravely a bit of a nightmare so far i'm afraid for you biddy he said shaking himself free from sentiment but this part of it will soon be over he got up pulled the blind down behind her and readjusted the cabbage leaf under her head just then the train pulled up at a station where there were selectors holdings and a german woman was lugging along a crate of garden produce he jumped out and bought another cabbage from which he shredded a fresh cool leaf for her pillow and at that they laughed and he relapsed into normal commonplace when she got out at fig tree mount he took her across the sandy street to the nearest and largest of the public houses which had station hotel printed on it in big blue letters a glaring crude zinc-roofed box with a dirty veranda that seemed a receptacle for rubbish and a lounge for kangaroo dogs to say nothing of drunken men the dogs took no notice of the male loungers but started a vigorous barking at the sight of a lady there was the usual bar at one end the usual noise going on inside and the usual group of bush loafers outside several riding horses were hitched up to the palings at a right angle with the bar and a bullock dray loaded with wool bales on the top of which a whole family appeared to reside under a canvas tilt was drawn up in the road the beasts were a repulsive sight with whip wheels on their panting sides their great heads bowed under the yoke and their slavering tongues protruding bridget looked at everything with a wide detached gaze as she followed her husband along the hotel veranda mckeith motioning his wife to proceed stopped to peer at the faces of two men lying in a drunken sleep on the boards not my men anyway he said rejoining her but that will keep the place seemed deserted and in disorder there were glimpses through the open windows of unmade beds within and on the veranda lay some red blankets bundled together colin took his wife into a parlour where flies buzzed round the remains of a meal and some empty whisky bottles and glasses after considerable shouting and knocking at doors along the passage he succeeded in arousing the landlady who came in buttoning her blouse her obviously dyed yellow hair was in a dishevelled state her eyes were heavy and her face sodden she had evidently been sleeping off the effects of drink had a night of it i suppose mrs hurst observed mckeith glumly this is a nice sort of place to show a lady into the woman burst out on the defensive but mckeith silenced her that'll do clear away all that mess and let us have a clean cloth and some tea and i say if you have got a decent room for my wife to wash the dust off and take a bit of rest in i'll be obliged the landlady blinked her puffed eyelids muttered an uncourteous rejoinder and went off with some of the debris from the table bridget laughed blankly she looked so small and flower-like so absolutely incongruous with her surroundings that the humour of it all struck mckeith tragically 
"'Good Lord! I wonder what your opinion is of this show. Here is the beginning of what is called the never-never country, my dear. Do you want to go back again to Government House?' "'No, I don't,' and she touched him to the heart's core by putting her little hand in his. "'That's my mate,' said he, his blue eyes glistening. "'But I'll tell you what I think of your splendid pluck when we're quit of these beastly townships and have gone straight into nature. Now I've got to go and see after the buggy and find my boys.' and I shall have all my work cut out to be ready in an hour. You just make the best of things, and if the bedroom is impossible, spread out my poncho and take a rest on that sofa there, and don't be frightened if you hear any rowdiness going on. The bedroom was impossible, and the sofa seemed equally so. Bridget drank the coarse bush tea which the landlady brought in, and was glad that the woman seemed too sulky to want to talk. Then she sat down at the window and watched the life of the township, the diggers slouching in for drinks, the riders from the bush who hung up their horses and went into the bar, the teams of bullocks coming slowly down the road, and drawing up here, or at some other of the nineteen public houses, to wet the wool in bush vernacular. She counted as many as twenty-four bullocks in one of the teams, and watched with interest the family life that went on in the narrow space between the wool bales and the canvas roof above. There were women up there, and little children. She saw bedding spread and a baby's clothes fluttering out to dry, and tin pannikins and chunks of salt beef slung to the ropes that bound the wool bales together. Then, when the wool was wetted, or when some other teams behind disputed the right of way in lurid terms, which Lady Bridget was now beginning to accept as inevitably concomitant with bullocks, the first stray would proceed, all the cattle bells jingling, and making in the distance not unpleasant music. It was the horses that interested Lady Bridget most, for like all the O'Haras she was a born horsewoman though she was moved almost to tears by the spur-scars on the lean sides of some of them, spirited creatures in which she recognised the marks of breeding, and by the unkempt condition of some that were just from the grass, she decided within herself that there could never be a lack of interest and excitement in a land where such horse-flesh abounded. Presently she had her first sight of the typical stockman got up in township rig. Spotless moleskins, new Crimean shirt, regulation silk handkerchief, red, of course, and brand new, tied in a sailor's knot at the neck, leather belt with pouches of every shape and size slung from it, tobacco pouch, water pouch, knife pouch, and what not. Cabbage tree hat of intricate plait, pushed back to the back of the head, and held firm by a thin strap coming down to the upper lip, and caught in two gaps on either side of the prominent front teeth. There are very few stockmen who have kept all their front teeth. Stock whip, out of commission for the present, with an elaborately carved and beautifully polished sandalwood handle hanging down behind, a long snake-like lash coiled in three loops over the left shoulder. Lady Bridget knew most of the types of men who have to do with horses, huntsmen, trainers, jockeys, riding-masters and the rest, but the Australian bush-rider is a product by itself. She liked this son-of-the-gum-forest tanned face, taut nerves, alert eyes piercing long distances, a man, vital, shrewd, simple as a child, cunning as an animal, and the way he sat in his saddle, the poise of the lean, lanky, muscular frame. No wonder the first stockman seemed to the wild blacks a new sort of beast with four legs and two bodies, and the clean-limbed, mettlesome creature under him, man and beast, seemed truly part of each other. Lady Bridget O'Hara's soul warmed to that stockman and to his steed. He was looking at the windows of the bar parlour, as soon as he saw the lady, the cabbage-tree hat was raised in a flourish, the horse was reined in, the man off his saddle, and the bridle hitched to a post. 
Now the stockman stepped on to the veranda. Mrs. McKeith, or is it Lady McKeith, I should say? I haven't got the hang of the name, if you'll pardon me. Mr. McKeith sent me on to say that he'll be here with the buggy in a minute or two. I'm Mungar Bill. Glad to welcome you up the Laura, ma'am, though I expect things seem a bit rough to you straight out from England and not knowing the bush. Lady Bridget won Mungar Bill's good favour instantly, by the look in her eyes and the smile with which she answered him. I'm from Ireland, Mungar Bill, and if we Irish know anything, we know a good horse, and that's a beauty you're riding. Out of a Pittsford mare by a Royal Luke Holt, and there's not a finer breed in the never-never. My word, you've struck it down there, ma'am, and no mistake, responded the stockman enthusiastically. I bought him out of the yard at Breezer Downs, that's Windernet's run, from sixty miles from Mungar, and I will say that though it's a sheep run, they've beat us in the breed of their osses. Got him cheap because he'd bucked young Winder off and nearly kicked his brains out, and there wasn't a man along the lure that he'd let stop on his back except me and Zack Duppo, the horse-breaker who first put the tackling on him. After the interchange of one or two remarks, Lady Bridget had no doubt of being friends with Mungar Bill, and Mungar Bill decided that for a dashed new chum woman, Lady Bridget had a remarkable knowledge of horse-flesh. The quick clop-clop of a four-horse team, and a clatter of tin billies and pannikins, as Lady Bridget presently discovered, slung upon the back rail of an American buggy, sounded up the street. "'There's the boss,' said Mungar Bill. "'Look alive with that pack-horse, Wombo.' Lady Bridget now perceived behind the stockman a black boy on a young colt, leading a sturdy flea-bitten grey, laden with a pack-bag on either side. He jumped off as lightly as Mungar Bill, and hitched his horses, also to the veranda posts. Except that he was black as a coal, save for the whites of his eyes, and his gleaming teeth, he seemed a grotesque understudy of the stockman. Moleskins, not too clean and rubbed, and frayed in places, fastened up with a strap, faded Crimean shirt, exposing a wheeled and tattooed breast, old felt hat, not a cabbage tree, with a pipe stuck in its greasy band, an ancient red silk handkerchief with ragged edges, where whip-crackers had been torn off, round his neck, and a short axe, slipped among a few old pouches into the strap at his waist. He jumped onto the veranda, clicked his teeth in an admiring ejaculation as he gazed at Lady Bridget. "'My word! Bridger a fellow white married you! You fellow mithers belong to boss! My word!' Then as McKeith drew up, his horses in front of the hotel, Wombo and Mungar Bill sprang to the heads of wheelers and leaders. It seemed to Bridget that there was a change in her husband ever since he had left her. He looked more determined, more practical, wholly absorbed in the unsentimental business of the moment. He had changed into looser, more workmanlike rig, was belted, pouched, carried his whip grandly, handled his reins with a royal air of command, as if he were now thoroughly at home in his own dominions, had already asserted his authority, which she found presently to be the case, and intended the rest of the world to knock under to him. There flashed on Lady Bridget an absurd idea of having been married by proxy, like the little princesses of history, and of being now received into her lord's country by the monarch in person. Her face was rippling all over with laughter when he joined her in the veranda. "'What? Another delicious black boy! He looks like a Christy minstrel. I thought you hated blacks, Colin.' "'So I do. You've got to have em though, for stock boys, and I keep my heel on the lot at Mungar. Wombo and Kudgy aren't bad chaps, so long as they're kept clear of their tribe. How do you like the new buggy, my lady? A dandy go-cart, eh?' He looked as pleased as a child with a new toy carriage. The buggy was quite a smart bush turnout, comfortable seats in front, a varnished cover now lying back, a well behind filled with luggage, a narrow back seat whence Kudgy, a smaller edition of Wombo, sprang down. 
Kaji too stared at Lady Bridget and clicked his teeth in admiration, exclaiming, "'Hello, new fellow Afterwards, Lady Bridget remembered the greetings and wondered why the black boys had said new fellow Who had been the old fellow she asked herself. McKeith sternly squashed the black boys' ebullition and told them to mind their own business. Bridget agreed that the buggy was first-rate and became enthusiastic over the horses, four fairly matched and powerful roans. "'Oh, what beauties! I'd like to go and make friends with them!' He was delighted. "'Good uns, ain't they? But wait and make friends when you're behind em. We've twenty-five miles to go before sundown. Got your traps fixed up? That's right. Here, Bill, take a ladyship's bag and stow it safely at the back of the buggy. Handle it gingerly. It's full of silver and glass follows. Not what we're much used to on the Laura. The stockman grinned and carried the dressing-bag, one of Sir Luke and Lady Talent's wedding presents, as if it were dynamite. Colin seemed anxious to impress his wife's dignity upon her new subjects. She felt still more like a queen of comic opera. He helped her into her dust-cloak, paid the bill, cut short the landlady's sulky apologies. She had done her hair and recovered herself a little. Then he settled Lady Bridget into the buggy after the manner of a bush courtier her feet on a footstool, the rug over her knees, a cushion at her back. His whole air seemed to say, This is the Queen, and I, the King, expect that proper homage be paid her. End of Book 2, Chapter 5